All right, welcome to Faith Seeking Understanding. I am John Green. I'm the host of Faith Seeking Understanding. Here we are. Today is the second Sunday of Lent. And if you missed the uh, Ash Wednesday message, then you might want to go back and listen to that, especially if you're not a liturgical Christian. And you might not know what in the world Lent is. Lent's a time when we prepare ourselves by fasting and prayer for Easter. So we, we uh, change some of our habits. We, we maybe focus on bad habits that we want to get rid of. And so we focus on those or we focus on positive things that we need to add to our lives to make us more Christ-like or to help us to know him better. So we might take up a, a, a more rigorous period of time every day when we study the word of God and when we spend time in prayer apart from the rest of the world. And so we might do that kind of positive thing in building that sort of a habit into our lives, or we might attack a bad habit in our lives and say, I want to get rid of that. But we want what we goal would be, we want to fill ourselves more with Jesus, fill our time more with him. So that's sort of Lent. It's a time when we take more note of the sin in our lives. We, we ask him to make us more aware of that sin in our lives. Um, so we can focus on those things and we can we can make our hearts more like his, that we can get rid of those things that are keeping us away from him. So that's Lent. So today, the scriptures that we're using are from Psalm 33, verses 12 to 22. Genesis 12, 1 to 8, which is the call of Abraham, where God calls Abraham apart from his father and his people, from everything that he knew, and sends him on a journey to a place God says, I will show you. And when he gets there, God says, I'm going to give you and your offspring this land. So that's Genesis 12. And then we're going to look at Romans 4, 1 to 17, uh, which is Paul's argument that salvation comes by faith. And his argument there is based in Abraham. And he says that, that Abraham believed and it was counted to him as righteousness, which is salvation. Um, that it was counted to him as righteousness. And Paul says that came before the first thing of the law, which was circumcision. He said he's not saved because he's circumcised. He's saved because he believes. And therefore, belief must always be the predicate for salvation, whether you're circumcised or not. He says you got to believe. If you don't believe, then your circumcision is not worth anything. But if you believe, it's worth everything. And so he's not encouraging people to be circumcised because of the finished work of Jesus on the cross. That's no longer necessary to be in the covenant. It's faith in the work of Jesus on the cross, that that was the, the sacrifice for sin and the resurrection is the proof that God accepted that sacrifice. And so if we believe in the cross of Christ, we believe in the resurrection of Christ being the sign of the the acceptance of Jesus' sacrifice, that it, was, that it was a sacrifice that was acceptable to God, which matters completely, right? Because just laying down his life would have been a wonderful thing to do, but did it matter? And the resurrection says it mattered completely, <laughs> completely. That proved everything. First man, only man ever to be resurrected from the dead but he gave his life as a sacrifice. And so he calls us, unfortunately, to do the same, <laughs> to be living sacrifices, to give our lives over as a sacrifice to the one who sacrificed everything for us. So which pushes us towards the um, gospel today, which is 
John 3, 1 to 17, which obviously includes verse 16, the most well-known verse in all the world. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that all that believe in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. So Jesus, right from the beginning, is talking about that issue. That, that if you believe in the son that God gave to the world, then you will not perish, but have everlasting life. And he pushes that a little further by saying, just as Abraham put a bronze serpent on a stick and held it up, and those who looked on it and believed would be saved, it's the same. That's a pretty straight up image, right? I mean, because what it is, is it's a stick. So you got a vertical thing, and then you got a horizontal thing with the snake, the bronze serpent on it. It had to be affixed to that. So you got a vertical and a horizontal, which in every world I'm familiar with looks like a cross. And you got something on that cross that it's not just two sticks of wood. It's also got a bronze serpent on it. Well, what? how is that the analog for what Jesus is going to do? Well, it's real simple. So what's happening in the desert, in the wilderness, is, is that God sent a plague on the people because of their sin. And that plague was serpents. And serpents were biting people, and the people that got bitten died. Pretty straightforward. So he gave Moses this very bizarre solution, let's say. And so he tells him to put a bronze serpent on a stick and hold it up in the sight of all the people. And anybody who looks on that bronze serpent on the stick is going to be saved. There's a word for that. Faith. (laughs) If you told me today, I mean, we're in the middle of this coronavirus thing. So if you told me that the solution for, for the coronavirus, if I had the coronavirus and you said, John, you can absolutely pass through this and be healed of it, I would say, sure, great, give me the cure. And I would expect you to give me a shot, give me a bunch of pills, something. I wouldn't expect you to put I don't know what it would be, a coronavirus molecule or whatever it is, put it on a stick and hold it up and say, look at that. And if you look at that, you're going to be fine. Not in Western medicine. (laughs) That's not how it works. So it required enormous faith for these people to say, I'm really going not just to look at that thing to see what in the world it is. I'm going to look on that and I'm going to believe that that will heal me from the bite of a serpent, and it did. (laughs) So how is that? Why is Jesus comparing it? Well, partly it's because it looks like a cross, but the other side of it is, is what is Jesus saving us from and healing us from? And it's sin and death, right? So it's the same basic kind of an idea. And so what was the problem in the wilderness? The problem was serpents. What was the solution? A serpent. The problem here is me, (laughs) humanity, me. That's exactly what it is. So what's the solution? It's the man on the cross. It's him taking on flesh, becoming like us. The incarnation is the beginning of the solution of the problem. 
So a man must atone for the sin of man in the same way that a serpent brought healing for those who were bitten by the serpent. We've got to figure out what's the problem. And so the cross with Jesus on it as the sacrifice says, the problem is you. So the solution has to be like the problem. And so that's what happens. Jesus comes to do that. And so here in, in um, John 3, he lays that out in a way that not a single person understood that night, least of all Nicodemus, because we know he was completely confused. Jesus talks about being born again, and he looks at him and says, wait a minute, physically that's an impossibility. A man who is old can't go back into his mother's womb and be born again. I mean, I know people who are literalists, but you surely didn't think that's what he was saying. <laughs> but, but he did, right? So what's funny about this for me is, is that every time that John 3 comes up and this whole idea of being born again comes up in our readings, I think of, of a lady who I love dearly, who was a member of the church when I was pastoring the church that um, had been in church all her life. She'd been in that denomination all her life. She actually worked as the secretary for a priest for about 20 years. She was a very faithful attender of church and had always been a faithful attender of church. And the first time that I preached on this passage, she came to me and said, I want to thank you for preaching about being born again. Well, sure, I kind of think I do it like more often than just today. I would at least hope that I preach this more often than just once a year. And, and she said, yeah, the reason I want to thank you is because... <clears throat> Honestly, I, until today, I thought Jerry Falwell made that up. <laughs> You've been in church all your life. This lesson comes up at least once every three years in the Sunday lectionary, and probably, I'm sure it comes up every single year, multiple times a year in the daily lectionary. You've worked in the church as the secretary for the priest, and apparently nowhere in all your 70-some-odd years did anybody ever focus on being born again except for Jerry Falwell? She honestly thought that was a phrase Jerry Falwell had made up. So every time I, I, I come across this passage, I just it, it always makes me smile because I loved her. But wow, <laughs> I, how could you be in church and not know that? And so that's sort of actually the takeoff for where I'm going. <laughs> because what I'm going to talk about is is some missionary history for you today. We'll start in 1457. <clears throat> so we're backing up a long way. And so what I'm starting with, though, was there was a group of people in the church in Germany in 1457 in a province called Moravia who began to look at the church, which would have been at that time the Roman Catholic Church because even the Reformation hadn't happened. But there was a guy named John Wycliffe, who was a Bible translator. John Wycliffe believed that people ought to have the Bible in their own language, that it ought not to be reserved for people who are scholars of Latin. And John Wycliffe, around 1380, actually translated the Bible into English. Wycliffe is called and referred to now as the morning star of the Reformation. He pretty much at that time, on his own, there was another group of people called the Waldensians who were around close to that same time. Who, who had many of the same ideas and were splitting off from the Roman Catholic Church. They did so at, so at their own peril. 
didn't end well for most people who wanted to split themselves off and go in a different direction. And so it didn't end well for Wycliffe. It didn't end well for the Waldensians, although they still exist. Here in North Carolina, where I live, only about 100 miles from here, is a place called Valdez, North Carolina. It was founded as a Waldensian community. And so the Waldensians still exist at this time. But but so now we're in the mid-15th century in Germany, and there's a group of people that came together around the teachings of, of the ideas, at least, of Wycliffe, and then another man called Jan Hus. And so they began to separate themselves from the Roman Catholic Church in that part of Germany. And remember, Germany is where Luther starts the Reformation about 75 years or so later. And so Luther did so at great peril because the emperor was actually there. And he was really over the church because the pope owed his uh, position to the Holy Roman Emperor at that time. And so Luther took great risks in separating himself from Rome and saying, you got your theology wrong and everything else follows behind that. Well, these guys were ahead of Luther by about 75 years. And so they started, they, they came together and drew up a founding document called the Unitas Fratrum, which is the, the unity of the brother, brethren. Odd that a bunch of people who, whose primary thing was that they wanted the Bible in their own language to have created the founding document and used a Latin term for it, but they did. <laughs> so anyway, that group becomes what are known as pietists. So the pietists are people who, who believe in the word of God. They don't believe in the church as the means of salvation. They don't believe in, in a lot of what was going on ceremonially and otherwise in the church. And so they had separated themselves. They, they gathered around three basic principles. That's faith, fellowship, and freedom. And so they, they saw the church outside of the empire. And the main thing that they wanted was they believed on, in practical Christian life. They believed their life was witness and that life itself would also teach you doctrine and discipline. That as you walked out your faith, you would, be, you would learn new things and you would, would then follow in the steps of Jesus at some level. So they had a very practical focus on, on what they were doing and, and why they were doing it. So <clears throat> they began to be persecuted, not surprisingly, and so they began to leave Moravia. Well, there was a guy named Nicholas Ludwig, Count von Zinzendorf, which just means Count of Zinzendorf, which is where he lived. And so he had grown up in a pietist tradition. And so people petitioned him and said, can we come live on your estate, on your lands, because we're fleeing persecution. We'd like religious liberty and freedom, similar to what was the founding of the American colonies, at least in principle. So they, he says, sure, come. So this group of people comes from Moravia. Well, over 10, this is about 1722 now, we've, so we've leapt forward a long way, but, but this is all the same tradition. I just wanted you to know that it was an old tradition. So they come forward and, and now they come. And then other people who also want to leave Roman Catholicism behind petitioning and say, can we come there? And he said, yes, yes, we're all Christians here. So he begins to invite anybody that wants to come, comes. And so you've got multiple different kinds of 
Protestants who were there, well, it took them about 15 minutes. They began to argue with one another, and then they began to not associate with one another and to talk badly about one another. And it was such a mess that, that people were getting ready to say, hey, we're moving on. And von Zinzendorf knew then that he had to do something, and he had to be the leader. That wasn't necessarily his intention, but it is absolutely what happened. They had formed this community, and they called it Herrenhut. And so Herrenhut was there, and, and so von Zinzendorf goes back, and he finds the Unitas Fratrum. And he takes it to the various leaders, and he said, how about this? How about we agree on these fundamental, simple principles? And the community here will be based in that because the community was wildly important then. So amazingly, they said, okay. I'm sure it wasn't perfect. I'm sure that there was still disagreements and people left the community because they're going to now gather around something. But they found the thing that they were going to gather around and they were going to keep it simple. As long as we believe these things, we can all coexist. So they did. And von Zinzendorf became clearly the leader of that. He had been in government service. He was a lawyer, but he stepped down in about 1727. He's 27 years old at this point. I mean, he's not an old man by any stretch of the imagination. He steps down from his government service to lead the community there. They started a prayer meeting. And what they will say is, is that they had a profound and decisive experience of unity when they were in a prayer meeting celebrating Holy Communion. They felt the power and the presence of the Holy Spirit on August the 13th of 1727, and it united that community. And I would say pretty much irrevocably, because they've continued that prayer meeting since that time. So it continues to this day. So <clears throat> something happened. It's sort of like a Moravian Pentecost happens on August 13, 1727, they come together. And this fellowship grows and grows. And people leave because they've sort of outgrown the space. And so they're moving to different places and they're setting up new communities. Well, in 1731, von Zinzendorf was asked to come to Denmark for the coronation of a new king. They've got all this pomp and ceremony and state um, meals and everything going on. There was a, 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 a server at dinner that night at the Danish palace. It was, but it was a guy who he was, uh, happened to be a black guy. His name was Anthony, which is the name he had been given because he had become a Christian. He had formerly been a slave in the Danish West Indies, which I didn't even know existed, <clears throat> but they did at that time. So Anthony comes, he's serving, and Monsensendorf asks him about how did you become a Christian? He said, well, I was about 20 when I first heard the gospel. And he stopped him and he said, wait a minute, how could you have been 20 years old when you first heard the gospel? You grew up in, a, in the Danish West Indies, which was started by Christians. And Anthony said, well, it's like this. He said, one slave went to find out what all these white people were doing on Sundays, what they were hearing when they went to this place called church. And so went and heard this, and the master found that he had done that and cut off his ears. And Zinzendorf is just shocked at this. And, and he said, well, why would he do that? And Anthony said, well, it's because they were afraid that if the slaves heard Jesus's message of freedom, 
that they might get some radical ideas. And so von Zinzendorf said, well, here's what we got to do. We got to go back home and we got to pray that God will raise up some people that we can send to the Danish West Indies to go and preach to those slaves. And then other people afterwards, how weird is this? The second mission work they did was people went to Greenland <laughs> among the Eskimos. I mean, it's, it's okay. Well, I got an idea. We're going to go to Greenland. All right, here you go. So they go. So anyway, this that's the story of Moravians. It's the beginning of modern missions in most ways. There were missions with like the um, East India Company who took priests along with them, um, but that was a commercial venture. <laughs> but you put priests with it and then it comes out, you know, hey, we, we're doing it for more than that. We, we want to do spiritual edification. We, we want to convert the Native Americans, which they didn't call Native Americans, they called them Indians. So they, they're going to convert those people. Well, around the same time, a little bit, just tiny bit after this, so 1731 was the first time they sent people to, to the mission field, the Moravians. Well, in, in 1735, there was a guy in England. He was an Anglican priest. He had formed a, something called the Holy Club when he was at Oxford and drew other people around him, and they committed themselves to living holy lives, measurably so. They would set lists of goals that their friends would all agree to. We're all going to do these things, and we're not going to do these things. And so the, he, his father had been an Anglican priest, so he became an Anglican priest. So at this point, it's now 1735, and so somebody comes to him and says, hey, we got this colony down in Georgia, and we're particularly located around Savannah. How would it be if you came over as a missionary to the Indians? And he said, yes. And so John and Charles Wesley boarded a ship in October of 1735 that had on it 80 colonists from England and 26 Moravians. They were coming too to do mission work. And so they get on board. They're on the way there. Wesley enjoys the fellowship of these Moravians while he's on board. And one night while the Moravians were having a uh, prayer meeting, suddenly an enormous storm, quite potentially a hurricane, hits. <clears throat> and the English passengers, including John and Charles Wesley, are screaming in fear. What were the Moravians doing? Singing hymns. <laughs> and so afterwards, Wesley goes to one of the Moravians and said, weren't you afraid? At least, weren't your women and children afraid? And the answer was, nope, <laughs> our women and children aren't afraid to die because they believed in the saving work of Christ. They believed and knew with certainty what was going on. Wesley was an incredibly religious man, but he was afraid like everybody else on that ship except those people, the Moravians. Later, Wesley continues to have contact with these Moravians after he had, well, let's just call it charitably a failed mission in the United States, he came and began to do a work. It wouldn't have been in the States at that time. It would have been in the colonies. But, but he, he came and starts a work there. And very quickly, he and his brother both get enmeshed in local politics in the colonies and doesn't go well. He's not 
well thought of because he'd chosen sides in this conflict. And then he started dating a woman. He couldn't make up his mind whether or not it was a good idea to marry her or not because, well, he was devoted to the work of the gospel except for his little political stuff. But um, this woman said, see ya. I kind of, I'm in it for marriage. And so she was. She married another man. Well, Wesley didn't like that. So he began to well, mention her occasionally. <laughs> his sermons, saying bad things about her. <clears throat> and ultimately, stopped her from being able to take communion. The husband sued him. <laughs> and then other people began to file suit, including, well, her father. And so it was about that time that he and Charles looked at each other and said, you know what, it might be a good idea for us to head back to England. So they did. And they went back to England, and, and he wasn't sure what was going on. It was very difficult things. In 1738, three years after they first went there, he continued to be in touch with the Moravians, and they, at one point in 1738, invited him to a meeting on Aldersgate Street in London. And there, somebody read from Luther's commentary on the Book of Romans, and what Wesley later said, he felt his heart strangely warmed. And suddenly he knew that Jesus had saved him from the law of sin and death. He said, it pleased God to kindle a fire, which I trust will never be extinguished. He later wrote of his trip to America. I went to America to convert the Indians, but oh, who shall convert me? He became aware of the lack in his own life. He was as confused about spiritual matters as Nicodemus was. He had no earthly idea what it meant to be born again, because he was trying to do things under his own effort. And so I grew up a Methodist. <laughs> I know the fatal flaw, and the fatal flaw is the belief that I can lose my salvation because of what I do or don't do. Focus more on what you did than what you didn't do. So if you, you know, got drunk Friday night, then well, you lost your salvation. And so people recommitted themselves pretty much. Some guys, every time they came to church, recommitted themselves because, well, they hadn't been living the proper life. And so it's not a bad thing to re-up, but it was, it was in the, the motivation was the belief that you had lost your salvation. The proof was your form of life. So the, the reality is there's, a, there's there are two basic errors in the church. And one is the belief that once you are baptized, you are saved forever. No, Calvin would never have agreed with that. <laughs> your, your way of life should tell the story of what your heart is and where it is. And, and so that's why Lent is important because that tends to tell the story if we pay attention to what it's saying. And um, if our lives tell the same story, then everything's good. Wesley got it the other way around. And that is, is that um, you, if you could lose your salvation, my thinking is, if you lost your salvation, well, was it up to you at the beginning? Or was it up to Jesus at the beginning? Was the, was the work of the cross enough then? And when did it stop being enough? So that's the, the issue that I had, that I grew up with this sort of schizophrenic idea that every time I did something wrong, I had lost my salvation and was going to hell. And then if I recommitted myself on Sunday morning, then I'd gotten it back, I guess because I made the decision to do that. Well, Wesley is well known as the father of Methodism, right? Well, the, how did we get from point A to point B? How did we get from Wesley saying, who's going to convert me? 
because I know I'm not really saved. I don't have any assurance of salvation at all. And the Moravians had told him that. But there's something lacking here. You don't seem to realize that this has that this has to do with you. You're not sure whether you're saved, but you're trying to get all these other people saved. So there was another guy who had been a part of that club who grabbed it. He got it right from the beginning and began to preach it. And he was responsible for the second great awakening in, in America, and that was a man named George Whitfield. Whitfield was the greatest preacher probably of all time. It, Benjamin Franklin worked it out one time because he loved to listen to him speak because he was a great orator. He worked it out one time that it was possible without any amplification at all for 10,000 people to hear Whitfield. But it wasn't just hearing him, it was seeing him too. He was a magnificent orator. And his main message was, you must be born again. He and Wesley differed over theology, primarily the theology I just talked about, about losing your salvation stuff. But, but Wesley saw the power that was coming from Whitfield and the power of people being drawn and converting to Christianity and, and really buying in, not just getting baptized and saying, I'm good to go and moving on. No, it, it changed. It transformed America. And, and Wesley said, if it worked in America, let's see if it works here. He started preaching all over the place in uh, England, and the same thing happened. The power of the Word of God preached with, with passion and zeal and conviction changed lives, changed countries at that time. And so what happens then is, is that, that the reason you probably know John Wesley's name and you might not know George Whitfield's name is Whitfield was a great orator. Wesley had something else. He had organizational skill. And so he built organizations and those things were methods that he used. And so the Methodists were formed and born out of the work of Wesley. He didn't intend to separate from the Anglican church. He intended to reform the Anglican church. But ultimately, it had to become a separatist movement in all of this. But John Wesley later in life grasps this thing at the same way that Abraham gets a call. Abraham's 75 years old in Genesis 12 when God tells him to leave Haran and everything that he knows. The, the difference comes down to this idea that Wesley didn't grasp at the beginning, and that is this being born again. You can't do it just through your own efforts and your intellect. You can't get there. No, you got to be born again. Thing that Nicodemus didn't understand, John Wesley didn't understand in a different way because he didn't have it personally happen to him until 1738 after he'd been a priest, after he'd been a missionary. He finally gets it. But the, the important thing in all this for me in, in this whole thing and, and from Paul's words, because what Paul's saying is you, you got to be born again. You've got to grasp the nettle at the outset. You've got to understand it's not something you do. It's not circumcision. It's not some other work. It's faith. It's belief in Jesus Christ. The work of salvation was finished at the cross in the same way that on the sixth day of creation, God stopped, ceased from his work. It didn't mean there was nothing left to be done. It was meant there was the work of creation was finished. And now the work that we were given was to spread throughout all the world. He gave us a garden, and then we were supposed to take that garden and extend it all over the earth using our own creativity to shape God's good creation. And in the same way, Jesus finished the work on the cross. In fact, he said it is finished. And then after the resurrection, before the ascension, gave the work of continuing the work to us. 
Salvation, the work is finished on the cross. There's nothing I can do to add to Jesus' work or to have any greater merit than I'm already given because of Jesus and faith in him. It's not about that. It's a matter of believing it with all my heart. But that's a work of transformation that can only be done by the Holy Spirit. As the Moravians experienced when they gathered in prayer at Herrenhut and the Spirit fell and unity came among the brethren. And it's the way that, that John Wesley experienced in Moravian meeting 11 years later. It's what happened in America in the late 1730s. It's what happened in Britain in the 1740s. God poured out his Holy Spirit because of the proclamation of his son. And because it was faithfully proclaimed, then God poured out his spirit and nations were transformed. Every time a revival happens, that's exactly what happens. First, people become aware of their own sins in the church. It first transforms the church because they're aware of their own sins. They begin to repent. They begin to seek after the Lord. And then that spills over as the lives of those in the church are transformed. That's what Lent is meant to do. It's meant to provoke revival in the church. That's the whole point of Lent. Let's pray that God will do that in our own lives and in all the churches that are observing Lent right now. And if you're not in a church that observes, it doesn't matter. You can. You don't have to wait for your church to do that. Your church may never do that. We need a time in our lives when we commit ourselves to hearing the Holy Spirit convict us of sin and of righteousness. If we want to see revival, it begins with us.